Susan Moran. And I'm Chip Granditz. And this is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, October 12, 2021. Coming up, we'll hear from Michelle Nyhouse, an acclaimed science journalist and author of the recently published book of the complex history of wildlife conservation movement and how it's critically relevant today. Conservation is about so much more than preventing extinction. It's about preserving relationships between species, between species and their habitats, and between ourselves and other species. Good morning. It is a brisk fall morning here in the Front Range, and you are listening to How on Earth KG News Science Show during the Fall Fun Drive, because it is the Fall Fun Drive. We're going to skip the news headlines today so we can spend a little more time on Susan's conversation with Michelle, whose book is called Beloved Beasts, Fighting for Life in an Age of Extinction. And uh, you just heard her voice live because she is here in the studio. And not only is Michelle here with us, but we also are fortunate enough to have seven copies of her book, uh, thanks to the publisher, W.W. Norton & Company, who has uh, generously donated uh, them to help support KGNU and uh, offer them as a thank you gift if you choose to pledge during this fall fund drive. Uh, one can be yours if you give at least uh, $60 to become a member or renew your membership. Uh, take that opportunity to call now at 303 449 for 885 to pledge your support for KGNU and this science show. Thank you, listeners, and uh, keep the calls coming. We will uh, respond shortly, but let's dive right now into the conversation with Michelle Nyhouse. She lives in White Salmon, Washington, and she writes about conservation and global change, among many other themes. And she's a project editor at The Atlantic and a longtime contributing editor of High Country News based in Peonia. Colorado, and her writing has appeared in National Geographic, New York Times Magazine, and many other publications. So great to see you again, Michelle. Welcome to How on Earth. Great to see you, Susan. So nice to be back in Colorado and to see you again. That's right. You've spent a lot of time here. Yeah. Many years, right? Yeah. And 15 years 15 on the Western years Slope. Yep. With High Country News. Uh huh. Well, and yes. Beyond. And uh, yes, 15 years. Uh, I'm still with High Country News in spirit and mm -hmm. in practical ways, but I lived down the street from the office for uh, many, many years in Peonia. Oh, that's great. Yep. So you've written about a super serious theme, basically how to save species, not just wildlife, but including ourselves, in a sense, from ourselves. And it's a quest that can make so many people, not just those working directly in conservation area, but feel pretty... Hopeless. And among the many things that struck me in the book was that if history shows us anything, it's that people many, many decades ago who worked to save birds, bison, other wildlife struggled with the same feeling, and they persevered. You quote the famous conservationist and author Aldo Leopold, who decades ago, way back in the 1920s, I think, wrote this to a friend, that the situation is hopeless should not prevent us from doing our best. <laughs> Kind of chokes me up in a way. Yeah. So what have you learned from these characters, many of them, in your book about how we can turn hope and hopelessness into positive mm. action? Yeah, gosh, I love that quote from Aldo Leopold, um, in part because he was he was really 
an op- very optimistic person and um, had had a lot of insight into what needed to be done and, and knew that we had a lot of opportunities to do the right thing for other species and for ecosystems. But even he was overwhelmed by, <laughs> by the circumstances that conservation faced and, and in private would say, well, you know, the situation may be hopeless, but but we ha- we should find the resolve to continue. And I, what I take from that quote is, look, yes, things may seem bleak. Uh, there have been times in the past when things have seemed bleak to previous generations, but but we don't know. We have the gift of uncertainty. We 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 don't know if the future will be as bad as it looks. It might be much better. And um, and we should find the resolve to to do the right thing, to do what we know is right for other species. Um, so I, I actually found a lot of hope in, in studying the history of conservation Mm. and and in writing about it because we are always, we are faced with this deluge of bad news about this and that species on the brink of extinction. And those are all true and tragic stories. But if you look, if you take the broader view of a hundred plus years of the international conservation movement, you can see that Mm. we've not only saved many species, we have many species on the planet today that we would not otherwise have if not for the work of individuals and groups and networks of people. In fact, we have a green list. We have a green list Recovered species, right? Not just the red list. Yeah. Many of you may have heard of the red list, the international list of um, threatened and endangered species, but there's now a green list of species um, measuring how much progress they've made toward recovery. So not only have we saved a lot, but we've learned a lot about what needs to be done to protect other species. And that, I won't say I'm optimistic. We don't know the future, but it does give me a sense of possibility that we have learned so much and we have so many opportunities to do what we know will help other ecosystems or the ecosystems we live within, I should say. I love how you stress the gift of uncertainty. Mm-hmm. There's this Zen, Zen koan I love that's not knowing is most intimate. Mm-hmm. And there's something about, I guess it's the, flip, the other side of the coin that could be vacuous hope. Yeah. Which doesn't really go anywhere. No. But this is, we actually don't know. Yeah. Aside from the fact that, yes, measurably, there's been some progress too. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, there's such a narrative of apocalypse in mm. our culture today. And, and believe me, I get it and I've been there. <laughs> but I, I try hard to resist that narrative because it does, you know, it does presume that we know what the future is. And, and I think we have to remember that um, our story is perhaps less like a tragedy where the outcome is foreordained and, and more like a comedy, not that it's always hilarious, but that we <laughs> don't know what the ending can be and lots of unexpected things can happen along the way, bad and good. Another thing that was unexpected just in the course of reading your book, speaking of comedy, Mm. there's some really funny (laughs) stories, the relationships between people, be it the quirky, competitive bravadoism between John Muir and Teddy Roosevelt before (laughs) and Gifford Pinchot and, and they're different parts. So, and also you really brought some of the iconic characters that have been kind of abstractions and superlatives in the narrative of the history of conservation. But tell us like a tale that stands out for you that might surprise listeners and certainly mm. surprised me. <laughs> well, thanks for mentioning humor. I, I, I mean, conservation history is the history of, of, it's a human history. So it's full of human foibles and 
certainly heroic acts, but also failures and um, and silliness and and real people and real people <laughs> doing real things. I mean, it's many of many of the people in the book um, are people that your listeners have probably heard of. Rachel Carson, we mentioned Aldo Leopold, John Muir. Um, I mean, and these people were brilliant and and did many things that we still value today, but they were also human. And I wanted to show them as human because, you know, no one, no one can follow in the, can, no, one, no one can imitate an icon, but we can. <laughs> <laughs> it's much easier to, to emulate people who we know were real human beings. So you mentioned um, John Muir, who went on a famous camping trip with President Teddy Roosevelt in Yosemite. Teddy Roosevelt had had invited John Muir to go camping with him because he admired Muir's beautiful writing about Yosemite. But when they actually got together uh, and and really m- went mostly on their own, you know, without a without a huge staff, into the wilderness and sat down around the campfire, they they actually. <laughs> um, both of them were big talkers and and really liked to hold the floor and and the one or two people who were there there to witness it said they kept talking over one another and and John Muir who who loved to be in nature and and uh, loved Yosemite especially kept bothering Teddy Roosevelt by by sticking little twigs into his lapel and <laughs> not treating him very presidentially so I love to imagine these two brilliant complicated men you know out in the woods together trying to figure out how to get along with one another and and they you know over as often happens on a camping trip you you do eventually find common ground and they did remain good friends and and in fact Mira was very influential um in Teddy Roosevelt's conservation policies. Including establishing uh, all these national parks, right? Yes, but it was a bit of a rocky start for Muir <laughs> and Roosevelt. <laughs> he literally stuck it to him. Yeah. yeah. You know, and if John Muir is going to uh, be so bold as to, to bother uh, President Teddy Roosevelt, I'm going to be so bold to bother <laughs> you, the KGNU listener, to let you know that it, it is your support that makes uh, shows like KGNU, that makes listener-supported community radio station KGNU possible. Uh, if you like what you hear, if you like the science show that was brought to you this morning and every Tuesday morning at 835, please call us now and make a donation at 303-449-4885 before copies of Beloved Beasts are no longer available. We only have a few left. Susan. And they can be yours if you call this morning. So again, give us a call, 303-449-4885. So we're going to continue talking with Michelle Nyhouse. She's the author of Beloved Beasts, Fighting for Life in an Age of Extinction. So I want to go to the global front and then bring us to Colorado after that. Um, You explore this colonial history of international conservation, particularly looks like in sub-Saharan Africa, elephants, rhinos, wildlife in general, preserved for colonial governments and basically then for foreigners visiting. And even without colonial governments actually in power now in Africa, this is still such a vexing question, isn't it? Namely, for whom are we conserving wildlife? Who has access? Who should have access? How do we even think about it? I mean, you think many Africans can afford to go on safaris, to say the least, if they Mm -hmm. wanted to. And many regard elephants as marauders and pests, and they need access to clean water and electricity and education before access to seeing, much less appreciating and preserving wildlife. So I'm curious, to bring us to today and how are conservationists and community leaders in Africa, say, viewing and tackling this question 
now, or if not, how should they be, do you think? And give us a sense of the history leading to this, too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is a um, a, a part of the conservation story where I think a, a working knowledge of history is so important because um, when uh, conservationists who, who started protecting species in North America and Europe uh, turned to the global stage, they followed colonial past. They started um, agitating to establish national parks and reserves in um, in colonized countries. And by doing so, I mean, it was their efforts were well-meaning, but they disrupted the, the much older forms of conservation that have, of course, been practiced at, at the local level for thousands and thousands of years, much longer than the modern conservation movement has been around. And sadly, the effect of, of many of these uh, many of these efforts in Africa was to disrupt the existing relationship between local people and wildlife mm. by establishing national parks. They certainly did some good, but they had the unintended effect of uh, disrupting, as I said, those established relationships where people depended on wildlife for protein, um, for other for other needs, but they also had worked out a system of um, preserving the population over the long term. Uh, and so what's happening now is I think there's been a real reckoning over the past couple of decades within the international conservation movement, recognizing the costs of, of this colonial approach to conservation, both for local people and for uh, the species that um, all of us care about preserving. And so the rise of community-led conservation, where the power conservation, um, conservation power is returned to local people, they have... Uh, they are able to set hunting quotas. They participate in mm. patrolling, um, in poaching, anti-poaching patrols, and they're able to benefit from tourism, both local tourism and international tourism. That's shifted the burdens and the benefits of conservation in a, in a way that started to restore that pre-existing relationship between people and wildlife. And and I I was able to visit Namibia, which has a mm. has had a national scale uh, community conservation program for about 30 years. And I was just so struck by um, by how powerful it was to see people um, sitting around at an outdoor meeting, having traveled for a, you know, a couple of days to get to this meeting, um, sitting down to discuss the future of their of their local wildlife and and their mm. their shared Assumption that, and really, they're at the ground level. Yeah, they're there. Not at the just all right. If level. you pay us some, we'll yeah pick the cactus or something. They're there saying um, how many. They're there agreeing, talking with each other. How many orcs? Given what, given the data we've collected in cooperation with um, regional agencies, how many orcs should be permitted to be shot in our in our uh, conservancy this year. Um, how are we going to contract with uh, guide companies? Um, how are we going to run? You know, how many guests are we expecting at the community-run hotel? And there was, you know, these meetings are messy and complicated, but there's this shared agreement that it's important to think about the long-term future of other species and the human community. And mm -hmm. I got to say, I've sat at a lot of meetings with similar goals in places with many more material resources and 
there has not been that underlying agreement that, yes, we need to protect these species for the long term. It's important. So just a quick follow-up to that for many of us listeners, others who would love to go if they haven't already to Africa, not that we're plugging any particular organizations, but how can one make sure they're making a relatively morally good choice and that mm. the outfitter they choose? I know you mentioned in your book a lot of what uh, WWF is doing mm-hmm. in conjunction, I don't know if you mentioned natural habitat, but those kind of outfitters or organizations that are not just conservation-oriented, but sort of community-based conservation-oriented yeah. for yeah. travelers? That's a really good question. I mean, I would uh, I would look to... There are um, organizations that work with these community conservancies in Kenya, Namibia, and elsewhere, and, um, and they make sure that the money taken in um, goes directly to these community conservation efforts. So um, I would... I would make sure to, to look for community-led conservation efforts or conservancies um, that are involved with whatever uh, company you may you may um, be considering doing business with. Thank you. Obviously, that's been disrupted by the pandemic, but um, hopefully it will return. Mm-hmm. And that is the voice of Michelle Nyhaus. She is the author of Beloved Beasts, Fighting for Life in an Age of Extinction. She is our guest for the Fall Fun Drive episode of How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I want to take a moment to thank some people that have already called in uh, to support the show and have taken this book as their thank you gift. Uh, I want to thank Marty from Boulder, and she shares... I love KGNU from the beginning. I've been here since almost the first day. She says she loves to support the science show. She's a news geek, and she took a copy of the book Beloved Beasts at the 8850 donation level. Thank you, Marty. Uh, Another good reason to call now is there's a challenge grant. Uh, Thanks to Alan Carpenter. Um, He is going to put up $1,000 to match dollar for dollar any donation that you make to KGNU, Alan Carpenter's going to throw in a dollar himself. So that doubles your voice. So those are two excellent reasons to call now and uh, show your support to KGNU and science programming. Thank you, Alan, for that matching grant. And we still have several copies of Michelle Nyhouse's book. For those who donate $88.5 for 88.5 FM or more. So call in 303 449 4885. So let's continue. So clearly, I think no one would dispute we've got a big global biodiversity crisis on our hands now. So many species have gone extinct or are under siege. Now, we did mention the green list, so some are in recovery, but I think it was just two weeks ago when the U.S. Fish and Wildlife declared that another 22 animals, 11 birds, 8 mussels, 2 fish, and a bat Mm. as well as a plant, have gone extinct. Um, And so many are being assaulted by human activities such as deforestation, farming, damming, overfishing, poaching, and, of course, climate change over and under it all. Um, And yet conservation efforts are also helping to recover some species. What's your sense, you know, what do the data show on the trajectory now? Mm. You talked early on about hope and hopelessness, but Mm -hmm. where are you... On that trajectory, yeah, certainly we're not doing enough. Um, the, I mean, the saddest thing in some ways to me about those that recent announcement of the twenty-two species having gone extinct that was that for most of us, it was the first time that we've heard the names of many of those species. Um, one of the one of the real 
I think places where there's room for improvement in the conservation movement is that we spend so much time thinking about the emergencies and that's understandable. It's understandable that people are focused on extinction because extinction really is irreversible. Um, but conservation is about so much more than that or should be about so much more than that. I mean, it is not only, um, not only very challenging to protect a species once it's highly endangered or to bring a species or mm -hmm. to, to avoid its extinction once it's highly endangered, but it's very expensive. Um, so taking a broader view of conservation and and looking at how do we protect species that are still common? What are the muscles out there? I mean, mm -hmm. these these uh, these lovely muscles that sadly are no longer with us have the most wonderful names <laughs> on the list. Give and us one. It, oh, <laughs> it's a uh, speckled pig toe. I think they, they're poetic. And I mean, what are the muscles out there that are, you know, such an important part of our freshwater ecosystems that are still healthy and that we can protect in great numbers, you know, before they become highly endangered and before they become almost impossible to protect at a, in functioning numbers, um, that's I'm I'm not at all downplaying the importance of extinction, and of course, mm -hmm. we do need to we do need to do everything we can to prevent those extinctions. But we also need to take the lesson from those extinctions, which is start earlier. Yeah, and speaking of the emergencies, I want to talk about um, sort of the predator species and, and mm. conservation. So right here in Colorado, many of course are familiar with, and KGNU has covered a lot of the reintroduction of wolves. Mm -hmm. How's that gone down? <laughs> well, as you know, and to whom, right? yeah, I mean, as you know, um, voters passed a ballot measure proving the reintroduction of wolves and, and wolves have reintroduced themselves uh, in recent years. When I was still living in Colorado, I wrote a story about the rumored return of wolves um, from wolves that had wandered out of the greater Yellowstone area, um, made a long distance trek to northwestern Colorado. Um, there there have been sightings and rumors and anecdotes for years. Their presence was finally confirmed in the state in 2019, I believe. And um, but unfortunately, the it's been touch and go. There's, you know, people are now wondering, are there still as many wolves in the state as we thought there were at first, have some of them died, have some of them left the state, have some of them perhaps been shot. Um, it's the, the story of the story of people living alongside large predators is a long and troubled one. Mm -hmm. um, and we obviously still have a long way to go in the modern West. Um, that said, the return of wolves from almost nothing uh, to populations that are so healthy that they're that they're you know overflowing their <laughs> political boundaries and wandering into new states is an enormous success story uh, and I think the I think it does point to the need to for the conservation movement to do more than simply protect other species from humans we need to support humans in living alongside mm. other species just as the community-led conservation movement is aiming to do in Africa. There are many things we can learn from that movement, which is now happening not only in Africa, but around the world. Um, we here in North America have species that we need to 
be better neighbors to, that we need to live alongside more responsibly. Um, how can we do that? How can we restore those relationships between people and other species, especially species with big teeth? <laughs> those are the biggest challenge. And this goes way beyond, all right, the government will compensate you, rancher, if you're I think cow so. or killed, but it's really a behavior of yeah. philosophical shift. I mean, those programs are a great start. Mm-hmm. Don't get me wrong. I think they can they can open up the conversation in ways... Um, in, in really helpful ways. Sure. I think um, it's really important because, to understand economics yeah. and why and there, it matters. Yeah, there are practical concerns, and conservationists um, should should be well aware of those. But, uh, yeah, it is a, it's a deeper shift, I think. It, it, it's, it requires that, that broader agreement that this is something that's important to do, that, that protecting this large species, troublesome though it may be occasionally, is something that we... We want to do, and we can argue about how to do it, but we need that. We need that baseline, um, that baseline consensus that it's something that's worth doing. And uh, late breaking news about a population drop here at the KGNU studios. Mm. Copies of the book, uh, <laughs> Beloved Beasts, are going to dwindle to zero pretty soon. So if you have been inspired by Michelle Nyhouse's uh, conversation and want a copy of your book, of her book, for your thank you gift, please give us a call now because science has proven that now is the best time to call <laughs> and support your local radio station. I want to thank Teresa in Arvada, and she shared with us that she gives thanks for the diverse programming. She really loves the Saturday music and African roots, and she took as her uh, thank you gift a copy of the book Beloved Beasts at the 88.5 donation level. Susan, we're almost out of time here on this fun drive issue of How on Earth KGNU Science Show. How do you want to wrap things up? Well, first to say to listeners, thank you so much for adding to our green list of sorts, <laughs> the green dollars. Yes. Um, I want to ask, well, basically you, Michelle, is there anything else you want to point out for listeners? Well, I would love to continue the conversation this evening at the Boulder Bookstore at 630. Um, please Bring your mask and join me. I'll be there in person, and uh, I'll be doing a short reading, and there'll be plenty of time for questions and discussions. So if you've heard anything today that you want to argue with me about or uh, (laughs) agree with or not agree with, um, please come on down. It'll be fun. Great. So once again, that's at the Boulder Bookstore at 6.30 tonight. You can go on the website under their events calendar to get more details. So I want to say thank you so much, Michelle Nyhouse, for coming on the show. She's the author of Beloved Beasts, Fighting for Life in an Age of Extinction. Thank you so much, Susan. It's great to be here.